probably, probably, you've experienced the time in your life where um, probably your mom or maybe someone that was motherly to you in your life, um, they're going off to the store or they're going off to shop or to do certain things, and they're leaving you at home. So maybe for me, I, I went to school every day, so I, you know, my mom would drop me off at school. I would be at school. Um, so on Saturdays, this is when this would happen for me. You know, mom would go to the grocery store or something on Saturday morning, and she would leave some of us behind while she goes to the store. And so the, the deal was that if you stay behind and you get to do what you want to do, you also have to accomplish certain things, certain tasks. And it was kind of like, almost like a honey-do list, if, you know, for husbands, you know. These, this, like, this catch-all list of, of final thoughts as she's running out the door. She's like, oh, this needs to be done, and this needs to be done. You need to, you know, vacuum this carpet, and you need to go wash these windows and clean these mirrors, and you have to clean your sink, get the toothpaste off or whatever. You know, there's all these certain little things that on, on, on her way out, her final thoughts are, I need this, 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 and this done. And that's kind of what we come to with Paul here in this passage. It's some, some final thoughts, some things as he's closing out his letter to the church at Colossae. He's saying, okay, these are, these are some certain things that I need you to do. And kind of the last half of the book really has been practical expressions of what he talked about earlier in the book, right? We, we, we talked extensively about the theology that Paul lays out there, about the sufficiency of supremacy of Christ. And that kind of, you know, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul writes, um, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And so he says, if this is true of your life, th there should be a change in your life. You should no longer be, you know, he, he talked a lot about legalism and, and Gnosticism and all that stuff. And so that, now he's saying, okay, now you should really live out the Christian life. This is, these are some things that you should do. And so he addressed a lot of practical things. And then he talked about Pastor Phil a few weeks ago maybe a couple weeks ago, talked about some family relationships, right? Um, wives and chil husbands, children, servants, and all those things. And then again, in, at the beginning of chapter 4, we have masters. So all these different people who have different roles and they have relationships, uh, Paul is writing to them to tell them how the gospel should inform these different roles that they have in their lives. Um, and then in verse 2, he kind of gives these final injunctions, these practices that he wants to encourage the Colossians to follow. And so we're just going to walk through these verbs here um, in verses 4 through 6 and then also give some thoughts on his closing remarks from 7 to 18. Uh, but the first verb that we see here in, in verse number 2, it says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. All right, so it's, it's, an, it's the idea of per persevering in prayer. Can, when it says continue, it's, the, it's to stay with it, to stick with it, not to give up. And it's funny that Pastor Phil, and if, I mean, if you were here this morning and you heard his message, he, he spent quite a bit of time in point number two, uh, preaching about prayer and, and how prayer changes things. And these believers, they depended on prayer and they, they went to God and they prayed for Peter and things happened. And, and Pastor Phil talked a lot about the necessity of prayer and, and our focus in prayer and all those different things. And I'd just like to touch on a few th more things um, about prayer. And the first thing is obviously to continue in prayer, to not give up. The reason it's, it's easy for us, the reason we're tempted to give up in, on prayer is, well, first of all, laziness. We just, you know, decide not to do it. Even if things are getting answered, we just, we just decide not. So it's laziness. But also, there's another reason. The other reason is that those prayers don't get answered, and we get discouraged and disheartened. 
And, you know, maybe one of the big things that I think of a good example of that is praying for loved ones who are lost, right? We, we pray for them over and over and over again. And, you know, sometimes we see certain glimpses of, oh, they might, you know, this might be a point where I could witness them or this might be a great opportunity and, you know, it just doesn't happen and we're really excited. We're praying really hard during that situation and then it just doesn't happen and so we get discouraged and it's like, well, you know, nothing's changed. And it's kind of like, well, if I, if I pray, I'm, re- I'm reminding myself that those prayers so far have failed, quote unquote, right? And really what, what, what that's doing is, is we're having the wrong perspective of success and failure in prayer, right? And really it's because we don't understand the purpose of prayer. The, the purpose of prayer is, is not to get what we want, ultimately. The purpose of prayer, now we can want, those, those are good things to want, right? It's a good thing to want your uh, loved ones to trust Christ. Why would you ever, you know, not want someone to trust? We want everyone to know Jesus. We, we want everyone to be saved from their sins. But, but the reason that we pray is, is not necessarily to get that. The reason that we pray is because God has asked us to do that because he wants us to depend on him. God already knows that those people need to be saved. God knows that we, you know, if we have a financial need, God knows what's in our bank account or, or you know, that, that our car is falling apart or whatever the case may be. God knows that that stuff has already happened. W- what God wants in that situation is for us to depend on him. Not, not for us to pray X amount of times and then we'll, we'll, we get what we want. No, he's not waiting for us to hit that prayer mark and then he's going to give us what he wants. No, God just wants us to depend on him and we trust him that he's going to do what is good and what is right. Right? I mean, the Lord's, the Lord's prayer. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what that is, is prayer is not an, an avenue. It's not an engine for us to get what we want in life. It's, it's an avenue for us to say, God, I want your kingdom on this earth. God, I, I want people to know you. I want people to, to submit their lives to you and to follow you. I, I want more people to, to trust Jesus Christ and to walk with him. And I, I want you to do whatever it takes. I want you to do that. But God, these are the things that I need. And, and God, I'm just telling you, this is what I need. And if it's your will, give them to me. If it's not your will, I, you, you know what's best. Give me what is best. Give me what your best is. And so, excuse me, when we're tempted to give up in prayer, because it's not working out, because we, we feel like, well, my prayers have failed. Understand that your prayer, the, the accomplishment of your prayer request is, is not based on your prayer effort. It's based on the power of God, right? That's why we pray to him, because we want him to do it. We can't do it. We want him to do it. And so when it doesn't happen, what we're, what, and, and we say that the prayers fail, well, we're, we're not saying that I failed. What we're saying is God has failed to do what was best. God has failed to accomplish his, his will, if we really believe his will is best. We're, we're, that's, we're, we're saying God has failed. We need to understand that God wants us to trust him, and that prayer is an act of dependence. The, the, yes, the Bible says, the, 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 the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That is very true. God uses prayer. But ultimately, the, the, the prayer is not God's God's way of medium of getting things done. Prayer is a medium for us to depend on God. For our will to be aligned with God's will, that's, that's the purpose of prayer. For, for my will to bend, to change to what God wants. And there's nothing wrong with asking God for specific things, but in the end we have to trust him that he's going to give us specifically what we need. 
And when I, I say specifically on purpose, because I, I, I think it's important for me and for everyone in this room to understand that every aspect, the, the little annoyances in our lives, the, the little grievances, the things, that, the things that get under our skin, those things, God allowed those things to happen if we believe in the sovereignty of God. And I, I do. I should say, since we believe in the sovereignty of God, God has allowed those things to happen. And so prayer is not getting what we want um, and Pastor Phil preach, preached a great message a while back. It was, I don't know, it might have been six plus months ago. But he, he said, you know, the, the title of the message was How to Get What You Want from God. And kind of the conclusion of the message was basically change what you want. Want God and then you'll get, you know, if you truly want God and you express that desire by actually acting on it, you're going to get what you want. Otherwise, you, you have no promises. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so sometimes good things happen to good people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. But God says he will draw near to anyone that draws near to him. That's, that is the essence of prayer. Not getting what we want, but getting more of God. And that's why we persevere in prayer. It, it is not, now part of it is to pray for others. And, and to, to want things for them. But ultimately, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I need you. Um, so that's, that's the idea of per perseverance in prayer. But secondly, it says, watch in the same with thanksgiving. And I always, you know, when Jesus at, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks his um, disciples to watch and pray with him. I'm like, why does he say watch? Like, what does that even, that's King James word, what does that even mean? And really the, the word, the Greek word that's translated for watch, it means to watch. Like it's not a bad, even today, it's not a bad translation. It's, it's, it's the idea of um, watching or being alert. And what, what this gives us a little insight into is that when we, when we are neglectful in our prayer life, when we are not communing with God and relying on him and going to God, it's like we have blinders over our eyes. We're, it's, it's like we don't care what's going on because if we see what's happening in the world, if we understand the reality of people's situations, if we understand that people, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but if we understand that people are literally on the precipice of hell and if they fall in, they're going to spend eternity without God. If we truly understand that, we're going to be alert. We're going to watch. We're going to understand that reality is true. Like, it's actually true. The, the reality of people's lostness and their, their separation from God, when, when we understand that, it causes us to say, I need to be praying to God because I can't do this. I can't force, I mean, some, you know, some personalities probably can, but this is not a true conversion. I can't force someone to trust Christ. Some people can get others to pray a prayer or to make a, you know, to have an emotional experience, but that's not a conversion. I can't force anyone to choose Christ. And when we understand that, when we understand what's actually going on, that, that makes, that should make us alert. We, we, and, and that alertness, that, that um, acknowledgement of reality, that acknowledgement of reality should cause us to pray and to be watchful, to have our eyes open and see the world as it is. And as it is, is there are millions and millions, billions of people that don't know Jesus and without someone telling them about Jesus, the Bible says, how can they, how can, 
How can they hear without a, without a preacher? How are they going to hear so, unless someone proclaims the message? Without that, they're going to die and spend eternity separated from God. You know, the, the worst thing about hell is it's not the, the flames. The flames, I mean, that's horrible. The, tor- the physical torture is horrible. But the, the worst thing about it is that you are separated from any grace of God. Any grace of God at all. We all experience common grace, right? Even, even the heathen, the lost, they experience common grace, you know, in things like good food. You know, that's, that's God's common grace to everyone. They will never experience the common grace of God. Not, e- not even the basic, you know, enjoyments of life. They'll be separated from anything to do with God for all of eternity. Alone. And when we understand that reality, that would cause us to watch, to be alert and pray. And then it ends, ends verse number two with the idea of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Um, when, when I pray, I, I try to use, you know, there are different um, acronyms that people use. I, I'm blanking on them right now. Of course I would be. There are different acronyms, and normally they start out with some sort of, of praise or thanksgiving. Right? I use one almost every day. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> but uh, I can't remember it. But it's like it starts out, you, you have praise. Oh, it's, it's, ador- it's um, adoration. It acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, which is like the idea not just of thanksgiving, thanking God for things, but like adoring God. Like thinking about actually adoring his, some, some aspect, some attribute that God has. And then it's confession, and then thanksgiving, and then it's supplication, which is asking requests. But there's a lot of, we have all these acronyms because we, we understand the importance of thanking God, not just going to God asking for things. God, God wants us to praise him and to thank him. I, and I really think before we, before I, it's my practice, before we ask for things. I, I, that's not, you know, and fast in scripture, but I, what I try to do that way, I make sure that I do it. I don't just always go to God with a laundry list. Okay, God, well, I need this, this, and I need you to show me what to do in this area, in this area, in this area, and my friends need this, and then I need these people to be saved. Um, I'm praying, I normally pray for my dad, so, or my family, so I, you know, my dad, my brothers, my grandpa, all these things. Before I do any of that, I want to stop and thank God for what he's done for me and praise him. Because what, what that does is it gets us in an attitude of understanding that life is not all about me. Life is not all about me. When, when prayer becomes a laundry list of what we want, like we've talked about already, that's, that's basically that God I want all your attention. It's all, and it's not, it's not wrong to pray for yourself, but when your prayers become like that, it's like, God, I need this, 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 and this. This is what I need. And then, in Jesus' name, amen, you're done. That, that's, that's not a God-focused life, right? That, that's not the kind of prayer that we've talked about where it's a dependence on God. That's just like, God, I, 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 a genie in a bottle, basically. You, you go to God, dear Lord, and you're rubbing the lamp, and then you're going to get what, what you want um, in life. But thanksgiving takes the focus off of me and it says, God, thank you for what you've done for me. God, thank you for who you are. And I, what I like to do in praying, there are two different ways that you thank God. You thank God for who he is and also for what he's done. And that's kind of like an all-encompassing um, way of thanking and praising God. You thank him 
Well, number one, for who he is. As in, he doesn't change. He's, he's always the same. Uh, God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God, God is all-present, all omnipresent. And, you, you have, and God, God is just. God is merciful. All these different things. And then you also have things that he's done. So first of all, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and, and all these different things. And then uh, you can thank him specifically for what he's done in your life. God, thank you for, for, for what you've given me. Thank you for the church that you've given me. God, th- thank you for, for um, you know, giving me the job that I have. God, thank you for giving me the house. Thank you for the friends that I have. Thank you. And y- you thank God. It gets the focus off of me and it gets the focus on to God. So that's, um, that's kind of the first few aspects of prayer. But then Paul, and I, I really like what he does here because he really puts... Um, one of the objectives of his life on display. One of the main objectives of his life is on display because he says, okay, I want you to pray. And he does this a couple times in scripture. I want you to pray, but specific, and while you're praying, don't forget to pray for me because Paul, what he was doing, Paul thought was so very important. Not because Paul was doing it, but because God said it was important. Verse number three, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I, also, I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest, excuse me, as I ought to speak. Paul says, while you're praying, while you're doing this, don't forget to pray for us because what we're doing is we're preaching the gospel. He references, um, he wants an open, uh, he, uh, open unto us a door of utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ. Um, the mystery of Christ, it's really, I, I really like that word in the, in the New Testament. It's a really cool word. What, basically what it means is that God has had this, it's not necessarily secret in the sense that God hid it from us. It's, it's secret in the sense that we did not understand it until God told us. Okay, so there's a little bit of nuance there, but there's, there's this plan of God throughout human history where he has been bringing all people together under the name of Jesus. That Jesus is now the way that all people from all nations, from every, every tongue, every tribe, every, everywhere, everybody has access to God and we worship God together. It's like the, the, the brilliant tapestry of what the, the local church should be. Different people from different walks of life, different backgrounds and all this stuff. That is the mystery of Christ. And in the New Testament, it's really um, best demonstrated in bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And, and earlier in Colossians, I believe it was in Colossians. I can't, somewhere that I preached recently, he was talking about, the, I, it wasn't here. Barbarians and Scythians and all these different groups of people that, is, that have been brought together because of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, in Ephesians, it talks about the, the middle wall of partition, as in there, there, was li- there was almost like this literal barrier that Jesus broke down when he died on the cross for our sins, where now all people can come together. And I just think that's incredible and amazing that, that everyone can come together and worship the same God together. And that is what Paul is preaching. And Paul says, everyone needs to understand this message. We need a door open so we can get this out to everybody. Everyone needs to know that they can worship God with me. Everyone needs to know that Jesus wants them to know him personally and intimately. And, and 
Paul is saying, the gospel is such a priority. I need you to pray for me. I'm not going to pass this opportunity up for people to be praying about my gospel ministry that people might know Jesus. I mean, verse number four, he says, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. What He's saying, I want you to pray Paul, who is a brilliant, I, you know, I never heard a sermon that Paul preached. There's some written down here, but who seems like a brilliant writer and probably a pretty good orator or speaker as well. Paul says, I want you to pray that I should speak the gospel. I can make it as clear as it ought to be. Someone who probably didn't, did not, in our, in our um, perspective, in our human perspective, Paul did not need to ask for that kind of, but he's like, it's so important that I want to, ha- to be able to speak it as clear as it should be spoken. I need God's help and I need you to ask God for that. And that should be a major aspect of our prayers. Like in the Lord's Prayer, like we mentioned earlier, thy kingdom come, or thy will be done, thy kingdom come. All right, I probably got those mixed up there, but it's still, it's a paraphrase. Um, that is what prayer is about. Bringing that, the, the kingdom, the gospel, people trusting Christ and all, all, joining this, this togetherness and this worship and all these things, that is what prayer is about. I, at least it should be a major aspect of our prayer lives where we are saying, God, I want people to know you. I want the gospel to, to go forth. God, I want you to enable me to, to, be a, to be a witness for the gospel. I want you to help those in my church and the, 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 the ministries of my church that we're using to, to uh, reach out with the gospel. This, this is a major aspect of prayer. And the, Paul... He's like, I'm not going to pass this opportunity up. We're talking about prayer. Don't forget, pray for us because we're preaching the gospel, the mystery of Christ. We want everyone to know Jesus. So that is kind of the first section. We're, we're, we're talking about persevering in prayer and then watching. Next, we see in verse number five, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Wisdom, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, it's a hard word to define because we have knowledge and we understand that you've got, you know, knowledge over here and wisdom's over here and we're not really understanding how they, you know, interlope and how they interact with one, each other, with one another. Uh, it can kind of get, it, it's a gray area, gray area sometimes for us. Um, and what, I'd like to kind of share something that I, I found that helped me um, this isn't exactly biblical, but I think it kind of helps us to understand how the Bible talks about um, knowledge and wisdom. So first of all, you have, this is kind of like a, a process, so to speak, so follow me. We've got uh, wisdom, actually I'll start over here because this is your left and this, that's how we think. So we've got knowledge over here. Knowledge, knowing facts, knowing and I, not just facts, but truth. And I think that's, that's important for us to understand. Knowing from God's word what the truth is, what's right, what's wrong, um, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, knowing who we really are in Christ, all those, those things, knowing who God really is and knowing what God has done for us, all those things, they're encompassed in knowledge, knowing facts or truth. Okay, so knowledge, knowing facts. Now we've got understanding. Understanding. Understanding is how those apply to daily life. 
That, that's basically taking that knowledge and then saying, okay, based on who God is, this is what I should do in this situation. Or based on who I am in Christ, this is how I should live my life, right? I, I'm, I'm a child of God. And so um, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bible. I should have put it on the screen, but I didn't think about it until just now, so... Sorry, but I would do it again. Um, okay, so we'll start. We'll start in verse number nineteen. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he gave us a fact that we are bought with a price, that we're not, we don't belong to ourselves. And then he says, this is how it applies. This is, this is the understanding. We take that understanding of who we are. We've been bought with a price. Now in our understanding, what we're doing is we're going to glorify God in our bodies, as in not just in our hearts and our minds, but also what I do physically with my body I should glorify him. That, so that's understanding. And then wisdom comes along when we actually do it. That's, that's the idea. A wise person actually does what he understands to be right based on his knowledge, right? So that's, that is wisdom. Not just knowing how to apply it to life because a lot of us, you know, we can be hearers only. But w- what we need to be is doers also, right? In James. So that's, that's, the, that's the progression, I guess, um, from knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and that's not in a chapter or a verse, but that really helped me when I was studying to understand what wisdom is. And so then when we see in, I lost my, no, I didn't. When we see in this, in this passage, Colossians 4, verse number 5, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. What that means is our understanding of how we should live should, we should have a little bit of urgency to actually be wise and do it because of those, those them that are without, we deal with them on a regular basis. It's those that are, them that are without are unsaved people, those who don't know Jesus. Those who are outside of, you know, this group of people uh, uh, that has to do with the mystery of Christ, um, that's what we're, those people that have not yet trusted Christ and have not entered into that togetherness of worship together with everyone, those people that are outside, we need to understand that I need to live in such a way because I interact with them on a daily, I mean, I don't know, for, for most of us that, that work in here at a job, most of us interact, I, almost all of us probably interact with people on a regular basis that are without. All right, and so, you know, if I'm, you know, wasting time on the job or if I'm telling these kinds of jokes at work or whatever, um, that's not wisdom. I might have understanding, but I have not yet entered into a place of wisdom where I actually live out that life. Because those people are without. They're the ones that are outside. They are on the precipice. And we have no idea when they're going to fall in. Redeeming the time. And it kind of reflects in Ephesians and Colossians. They, always, they're, they're, they go really handy. Like, it's almost like you have Ephesians and then you just 
you know, break Ephesians into blocks and you rearrange them a certain way and it kind of makes Colossians. It's a, it's a really cool thing. But uh, redeeming the time, it's not necessarily the same idea as when in Ephesians when it talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil. It, it more just has the idea of we have a limited amount of time. We have a limited amount of time on this world. Not just us, but them that are without as well. Right? The, the understanding of the New Testament believers was that Jesus is about to come back. And it should be our under, it has been 2,000 years, but it's just as imminent as it was then. It, it, he's about to come back. We have a limited, there is a set amount of time. We don't know what that is, but it's going to happen. And when that happens, we, we, we can't go back. There's no going back and living rightly before other people. There's no going back and showing your coworkers the love of Christ. There's no going back and inviting your neighbor to church or telling them the gospel. There, there's, no, there's no going back and living in your family a testimony of the grace of God. There's no going back and doing any of those things. We have a limited amount of time that must be, as the Bible tells us, redeemed. And when we think about the urgency of the situation, the reality of the situation, what we know, right? Our knowledge, we, we start to understand what our response should be. We need to walk in wisdom then. We need to walk in wisdom toward, toward them that are without. Understanding that, yeah, my coworkers can be jerks sometimes or my neighbor can be a jerk or, you know, that person at Walmart can be a jerk, but they need Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need to be told that they're a jerk. Now, you know, if they're about to hurt somebody, that's another story. But, you know, other than that, they don't need to be told that they're, they don't need to realize how much of a jerk. What they need to do is they need to realize they need Jesus Christ. That there's someone who died to give them not just a home in heaven, but a better way to live. And that urgency should produce wisdom in the walk. I should, I should have said this at the beginning. But the, the idea of walking, that's our daily life. Like that, we, we kind of have the same, um, you, not you, I, metaphorical language, I guess, today, where, you know, the idea of walking is how we, how we walk and talk. We live out our lives. That is walking, our lifestyle. You, your lifestyle should be one of understanding. It's so easy, right? It's so easy for us to get self-focused, like we've talked about with prayer. So easy for us to get self-focused and to just kind of get in our routine. And I got to get, get to work at this time and I got to do these things at work and I got to get, get done with those things. And, you know, then I got to go home and I got to, you know, do this, take the dog out, make dinner, do all, do all these things. And what we forget is there are truths. There's knowledge there that has given us understanding about life and we're neglecting to, to walk in that wisdom because we're so stuck in our daily um, routine when our routine should be one of a weight. That person that cut me off on the road, that's someone that needs Jesus. Or that person that cut me in line at Walmart or whatever, what, or that, that cashier. Uh, just a little rabbit trail, because I'm, I'm probably going to be done earlier than normal tonight. Wow. Anyway, uh, um, there's this lady. You know, I, I've started to realize that I know some of the workers, some, the, the people who are probably full-time. I probably know some of them at Walmart now. It's pretty crazy to me. I'm like, how in the world did that happen? But I, I know these people. And there's the, this one lady who every, you know, every other time I go to Walmart, she is on the register. 
And the first time that I was in, and she always does something like this. It's always something with her. The first time that I was on her, uh, in her line at her register, it, it was time for her break to begin. Like she was in the middle of a transaction. And it was time for this lady's break to begin. And I guess the actual Walmart policy is that when your break is scheduled, everything stops. Everything stops. And it's time for you to go on break. So this, she had been checking out this lady and, you know, she probably had a large family or something. So she had quite a, you know, quite a lot of groceries and whatnot. And, and, pro, and so this lady like just stops. And I didn't notice what had happened until a couple minutes, you know, I was probably not, it was probably more like eight or nine minutes. <laughs> we had been standing there and nothing had been wrong. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm like leaning out. And uh, I realized when, when her manager comes over and checks her out and all these things, she had said, I'm not going to finish this, um, this order. I'm not going to ring out all these items until, you know, I come back for my break. Someone has to take this for me. I was just like, why? What are you, what are you doing with your, like, what are you thinking? Are you even a real human? Like, I, that just does, that's unfathomable. But, but I, we neglect in those situations, right? And I can't even remember what exactly. I was, I was frustrated, but... We neglect in those situations to think about this person who is really lazy and messed up my order and doesn't give a rip at McDonald's, that person needs Jesus. All right, and, and the fact that you got mustard on your McDouble when you asked for no mustard is, does not matter. That's happened to me, you know, that I don't like mustard. Does not matter. It doesn't matter if that person's really on the precipice ready to fall in. It really does not matter. And we need to walk in with, that needs to be our lifestyle. It needs to be ingrained in us. It needs to be a part of us where we're like, that person needs Jesus. Jesus died for that person and they're separated from God. No, uh, let's move on to verse number six. We got one more verb and then we'll look at some principles from the end of this chapter. It says, let your speech be always seasoned with grace. Or it doesn't say seasoned there, I'm sorry. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. And this goes into, you know, the same idea. That our, our speech should never leave grace. You know, it's really crazy to think about how much grace God has given us. I mean, just think about how much grace God has given you in your life. And I talked about common graces and, you know, we have good food and we, we enjoy our families and all these different things that everyone can enjoy. But also he's given us grace in Jesus, right? And in, in, in Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, he's given us this immense, immeasurable amount of grace. And it's crazy to think that somehow our grace ends when we get a little bit frustrated. When someone just kind of rubs us, through, that's, when our, that's when that immeasurable grace runs out, right? It, it, was measure, it was immeasurable right up until that point. Now it's like, oh yeah, it was measured and we, we hit the limit. We hit the limit of grace. I don't have any more grace to give. I'm, I'm frustrated and that's all that matters in this moment. It says all way. Now, 
I sh- and I should, have sa- I should have said something like this sooner, but Christianity, the Christian life, following Jesus, it's not about perfection, it's, it's about direction. So as human beings, we're probably going to fly off the handle, everybody, at least in some way, right? Depending on your personality and, and you know, where you are in your relationship with God, you are probably going to fly off the handle and, and say something that is not gracious at some point. But God calls us to graciousness because of the grace that we have been bestowed. Let it, let it be with grace always. But secondly, season with salt. And when, when, I, when I've read this verse before, I thought, oh, he's just kind of repeating the same. Like salt's kind of like, I don't know, good. So you just kind of, you know, make sure that it, it tastes good to other people. It should be seasoned with salt. It should taste good. When other people hear it, it should be like music to their ears. That's what it, but that's not really the meaning of salt here. What the meaning of salt is, is kind of more like it purifies. It, 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 it gives clarity. And that's what our speech is to do as well. And w- what that means is when we, when we talk about the gospel, and I, I should, when, because I say when, I'm, not if, when, because all believers should be in some respect telling others about Jesus. When we talk about the gospel, it should be in ways that give clarity and show people truth. We should be able, we should know enough about what Jesus did on the cross and who we are in our need of him. We should know enough about those things to, as much as we're able, to give clarity. Now, I understand, you know, some of us are more nervous talking to other, I, you know, I actually do get really nervous talking to other people like that. I really do. And I understand. But as much as we are able, we, we are to prepare ourselves to be able to give a speech that is seasoned with salt that gives clarity of the gospel. You know, if, if you don't salt a food, it's kind of like dull and, you know, uh, I, I like salt a lot. And I know in the South, you know, I really like a lot of seasoning in the South because there's a lot of salt going on. And it, it brings out the flavor. It enhances the flavor of the food that you're eating. And that's, that's how our speech, our speech should um, enhance the flavor of the gospel. Not, not that it needs to be enhanced. What I'm saying is it should present clearly the flavor of the gospel, the meaning and the message of the gospel. That is... Um, your, your speech being seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer every man. As in, there's this, there's this, biblical, under, this biblical assumption, implication, that you will need to have an apologetic. Now, when I say apologetic, you know, it's like the defense of the faith. Um, not necessarily that you needed to be an apologist and you need to understand all these different, you know, um, reasons that, that God exists. And I'm trying to think of the terms, but they're not coming to my mind. But um, you don't need to understand all those technical apologetic terms and what they mean. What it means is we need to understand what the gospel means and what it means to people today. That when someone asks you, well, why do you live that way? Well, because the gospel has changed me. I have been shown grace and I need to show others grace. Why do you do those things? Because I'm no, longer, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I need to glorify God with my body. I need to, to physically live out what God has done for me in purchasing me on the cross. That's what I need to do. We need to understand those truths so we can explain to people, Jesus saved me from sin and myself. And he rose again from the grave and I can live differently because of that. 
that is kind of the last injunction here um, that Paul gives. And for sake of time, I'm just going to move on and we're going to... Um, really quick, never mind. I'm, I'm going to say I have one more thought about, about um, your speech and, and being seasoned with salt. Um, some of you might be unaware, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of a nerd and I'm into these kinds of things. But recently, um, I think it was like the past couple weeks or so, there was a movie that came out. Um, the Joker, right? You know, Batman and the Joker. Um, and it's really interesting because back in, you know, maybe the 60s or whatever, when you had the Batman show, it was like Cesar Romero was like literally a clown, like just doing ridiculous stuff. And I mean, on that show, I, I only know this because I've never seen an episode, but I've seen like memes and stuff on the internet. And there's like one episode where there's a shark and I think Batman has shark spray in his utility belt and he pulls out shark repellent and like sprays the shark to get rid of the shark. Well, that kind of silliness happened in that story and you know, whatever, it's, that's fine. But, but since then we've taken like a little, they've, or not we, they, I should say we, we as a society have taken a little bit more of a cynical, nihilistic approach. Maybe it's nihilistic. I'm, I'm not sure how to say that word, but maybe, maybe you know what I'm trying to say. I think it's nihilistic. Um, you know, and you had a, a Batman movie in like 2009 or something where Joker was like really bad dude. And this past one, it's just crazy. I, I haven't read any specifically of what happens. I've just read some commentary um, on the movie. But basically what, what the idea of the movie, and I'll really quickly, this guy just has a lot of really bad things happen to him. And because all these bad things happen to him, that's why he turns into a wacko who's like unhinged and starts doing heinous acts publicly, basically acts of terrorism, like making sure that everyone knows that he's doing these things. And that's, you know, that's kind of the idea of Joker does all these things and Batman comes in and blah, blah. But Batman's not in the movie. It's just Joker. And so our society today has this idea of like nihilism, of, of darkness, right? It's, and it's so prevalent and evident in our society that, you know, they're so cynical and, you know, so, someone that has all these bad things happen to them, they will become bad and it's not really their fault because the, these bad things happen. When bad things happen, people do bad things. That's, that's the idea. And so it's this, this ultimate nihilism. And more than ever in our society, in our culture, we need to be able to explain that Jesus died on the cross because he wanted to. He made a choice, a, a choice of love. Not to get anything, not, you know, we, we can't view it cynically at all. He, he is the ultimate anti-cynic. He died because he wanted to. He had no motive, no, no you know, there, there was nothing in it for him. He died on the cross for our sins and we need to express the gospel in such a way that it, that it shines light on, on the ignorance of that nihilism. We need to take the truth and to be able to present it, not just in the way that we have, but definitely walking in wisdom, in the way that we live, but also in our speech. Very clearly, he says, in our, it's not, you know, those who have been to speak. It's believers. This was written to a church. We're a church. A church of people like us that, that are to go forth and give speech with grace and season with salt. 
So I've got a few thoughts from the remaining verses, and, th- and then we'll, we'll be done here in a couple minutes. Um, I'm just going to read this passage really quick, and then, and then I'll give those thoughts. Verse number 7 of chapter 4. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So he's talking about Tychicus. Excuse me. Whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that, that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, Greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus, and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. I don't know if you caught in this section of this passage, but Paul mentioned a lot of proper nouns, as in specific people or specific groups of people that Paul knew or knew very well of. Right? Over and over, Paul talked about individuals. So the first thing that I'd like to bring out, first of all, number one, Paul was evident evidently, or Paul evidently invested in other people, in others. And uh, I, I say evidently not as to say, well, evidently this happened. I said, no, it was accidentally, actually evidenced in his life. There was actual evidence of things that he did that showed he was invested in other people. As in he's like, okay, well, here's, here's what this person is up to. Here's what this person is doing. These people are with me and we're, we're doing these things together. And this person, that, that's what this is going on with this person. Make sure that this happens with him. And, you know, with Laodicea, make sure you do this. And he knows about these people. I mean, think about how many, Paul, how many people Paul would have known. And it wasn't like Paul could go on Facebook and see what was going on, you know. Like, that's how I know what's going on with other people. Facebook. They would write letters and things like Paul invested in other people. Paul knew other people. That was the way that Paul did ministry. Ministry is people serving, is serving people. You can't serve, you know, well, you you can serve an idea, I guess, but biblical ministry is not serving ideals. It's not serving institutions. Biblical ministry is serving individuals. And that's what Paul did with his life. He knew all these people And I hope that as a church we would realize I need to know people and serve people. Secondly, 
Paul acknowledged the benefits of laboring together. And I think it says it differently up there. I'm, what, what did I say up there? Number two. I don't know. Paul acknowledged the benefits. as in he, he accepted a responsibility. He accepted a responsibility, a, a need. Paul prior, That's what I said. Paul prioritized working with others. It was important to him not just to do everything on his own, but to have fellow workers, fellow laborers. Other people that worked, he was not, um, um, let me put it, Paul rejected self-reliance and hyper-independence. Paul said, I can't do this on my own, and I'm not going to do this on my own. He could have, you know, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He could have followed rules like nobody's business and memorized Bible verses and done all these things. Paul could have probably done it better than anyone in this room. But he said, no, I'm not going to do it that way because the gospel is not about self. It's about together. The gospel is by nature together. And we can't rely on self. We need to say, others, I need you. And I want to be there for you guys too. And that's what Paul, I mean, Paul was almost always with somebody. Why would Paul need someone with him? Because he knew he couldn't do it alone. Even probably one of the greatest Christians of all time could not do it. The man who wrote most of the New Testament could not do it alone, and we should not think that we can either. And beyond that, God makes it abundantly clear, not just by the example of Paul, but in Scripture over and over again about together, laboring together, meeting together, worshiping, singing together, singing to yourselves with an S on the end or V-E-S on the end. Psalms and hymns and spirit. There's something cathartic about singing together in this room, right? We need to understand that we need each other. Paul did, and I, I think more than anything, we should, we should as well. Well, I've, I've enjoyed this, this study in Colossians, seeing how the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ should reign in our lives. Not just, you know, in our theology, not just on our bumper stickers or in our, you know, little cute pictures on the wall from Big Lots. Or not, not, is it Big Lots? What's the? Hobby Lobby. Not just the pictures from Hobby Lobby. Um, but in our hearts. And what, 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 what happens in our hearts, like Pastor Phil talked about in Sunday morning, bleeds into our lives. It just will. And I hope that the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ will do that for you as well. And I pray that it, it will happen in my life. Um, let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for um, the truth of the gospel, the knowledge that you give us, and Lord, the ability to understand. Lord, I pray that we would walk in wisdom based on what we've studied together tonight. Lord, I thank you for who you are and the grace that you show to us every single day. The amazing, un unfathomable grace that you give to us every moment. Lord, I pray that we would live that grace out. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.